This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Christ-like leadership. In the first half, Robert Sloan shares his address, Leadership, Character, and Core Convictions. Then in the second half, Curtis D. LeBaron speaks on Face-to-Face Leadership, As a Man Speaketh Unto a Friend. Our Lord, of course, in that great uh, sermon told us that we are to be salt and light in the world. Uh, whatever else uh, may be meant by those metaphors of salt and light, and of course the commentators and scholars debate over the exact uh, uh, background and significance in that context of those words, but whatever the precise meaning, particularly of the word salt, is it a preservative, does it provide seasoning, whatever, uh, the simple fact is, is that both salt and light extend their influence to their environment. When salt is around things, they become salty. Where there is light, things become illuminated. The character of salt and light is that somehow they extend their properties to their environment. And surely that is in some ways, uh, in fact in many ways, of the essence of leadership. Leaders influence those around them by definition. Leaders extend their influence. Leaders have an impact upon those around them. And so on the one hand, it's very possible to be intelligent. It's very possible to be accomplished. It is very possible to have achieved things individually and in your own right and yet not yet be a leader. And so I want to challenge you today to take seriously the words of our Lord that as his followers, as his disciples, we are to be salt and light in the world. We are to extend the influence, the example, the character of Jesus Christ through our own lives into the world around us. And that in many ways is, is my challenge for you today. I'll call upon that uh, pagan oracle, the oracle at Delphi, and the well-known uh, a phrase, nosce te ipsum, know yourself. I'll use that as an illustration and a, a kind of exhortation to challenge each of us today to reflect for a moment about ourselves, reflect with me for a moment about uh, some historical examples of leadership that I want to give you. And in the process of hearing uh, of several individuals who I think we would all agree were leaders in American history, uh, I ask you, I ask uh, of myself, that we attempt to know ourselves, to reflect upon ourselves and see exactly what our gifts are and how we may apply our gifts, our abilities, our intelligence and achievements in such a way that we extend ourselves in the world and become an influence, become salt and light in the world. Perhaps you've had the opportunity to read David McCullough's uh, very popular biography uh, issued last year of John Adams. This is a very uh, popular uh, piece. It has been read uh, by folk across the nation and around the world. It's very well documented, historically uh, researched, and is a very fascinating study, not only of John Adams, the second president of the United States, but also of a, of a number of uh, well-known characters in American history. It's a book that covers the life of Adams from his humble beginnings through his time as a, as a diplomat and then, of course, uh, consummate, consummated by his uh, leadership uh, as the elected leader uh, of the United States. Perhaps one of the most interesting features of this book is uh, McCullough's uh, account of the processes and uh, anecdotes and incidents that led up to uh, the uh, creation and signing, ultimately, of the Declaration of Independence. So I want you to be, uh, for a moment, uh, shall we say, a fly on the wall with me. Let's go back to uh, Philadelphia. Let's go back to the spring and summer of 1776 
And let me share just a few uh, anecdotes uh, about characters who participated uh, in the creation, ultimately, of the Declaration of Independence as it took shape, particularly in June and early July of 1776. Well, you can't uh, begin to uh, think of the Declaration of Independence without, of course, first of all, thinking of Thomas Jefferson. When the delegates of the Second Continental Congress uh, met, they had already uh, handed over a great uh, burden of work to Thomas Jefferson. Uh, this uh, tall, unassuming delegate from Virginia had sequestered himself for uh, most of the month of June, had almost uh, single-handedly drafted this magnificent document, which, uh, after revision and uh, official approval and authentication, is known to us as the Declaration of Independence. Uh, he stayed in an upstairs apartment at the corner of 7th and Market Streets in downtown Philadelphia, and uh, it was his strength of mind, his vigor, his his ability to, to shape words expressive of great ideas that came to be known as the Declaration of Independence. Jefferson was a man of enormous vision. I'd like for you to think of Jefferson and associate the word vision. We'll come back to that in a moment. And then, of course, there was Benjamin Franklin. Uh, Franklin could not have been uh, more uh, unlike uh, Thomas Jefferson in many ways. Uh, Franklin, by this time uh, in the proceedings in Philadelphia, was a rather quirky, eccentric, uh, aged uh, uh, fellow. Uh, he uh, was never at a lack for words, uh, a man of humor and wit uh, and uh, proverbial wisdom uh, from Pennsylvania, whereas, of course, uh, Jefferson was from Virginia. Jefferson was a, a farmer um, and uh, an estate holder. Franklin, though both were inventors and men of uh, great uh, intellectual capacity, uh, Franklin himself was a printer by trade as well as an inventor. And yet, when the delegates convened and when, when Jefferson's uh, first draft was brought out and the delegates began to pick over virtually every word and phrase of Jefferson's uh, monumental document, Jefferson uh, became incensed. On more than one occasion, uh, as the delegates would pull and, and attempt to revise virtually every phrase and word and would critique and evaluate, you can imagine with the pride of ownership, the genius of a Jefferson, as he sat there, he fumed and on more than one occasion was tempted to storm out of those meetings. Benjamin Franklin took the chair next to Thomas Jefferson and on more than one occasion settled him down. Uh, there's one story told in McCullough's book about uh, a story. Jefferson was fuming at the uh, treatment of uh, some of his uh, phrases and words and ideas by the delegates, and Franklin leaned over at one particular moment and told him the story of a hatter a hatter in, um, in uh, Philadelphia that uh, Franklin knew. Franklin told the story like this, and quite possibly the story was an absolute creation of Franklin's mind. But Franklin said, you know, he says, I have a friend who's a hatter, and he wanted a sign made. He wanted this sign to say, John Thompson, hatter, makes and sells hats for ready money. And he wanted the sign to have a hat, a sample hat affixed to the sign. Well, just before he commissioned the creation of this sign from the uh, sign maker, uh, Thompson decided he would ask a few of his friends uh, for their advice. And by the time the friends got through picking over Thompson's uh, proposed sign, it came down to this, Thompson and the painted picture of a hat. 
Well, apparently that amused uh, Jefferson enough. It cooled him down on that occasion. But Franklin was a man who, who was able on more than one occasion to take the delegates aside and, and on, in that hot summer give them a little something to drink, some cold ice water uh, to cool them down a bit and get them out in the shade. It was unbelievably hot and uh, cooled the tempers and the emotions. Franklin was a man who understood the importance of people in relationships with people. And then there's an, an interesting character by the name of Caesar Rodney, a name probably we don't know, but the story very quickly about Caesar Rodney is, is that just um, as the time for the vote drew near, I think the vote took place on uh, July the 2nd, actually, but as the time for the vote drew near, Caesar Rodney, who was a delegate from Delaware, was not present and Delaware would have had no vote and no one present. And it was politically very important to try to get uh, all of the 13 uh, colonies and would-be states on board. It was important that they stand together. And they had wrangled and hassled over this wording. They had come to various compromises. And it was important to try to get everyone, though Pennsylvania ultimately abstained. Nonetheless, uh, they were aiming for unanimity. And at the last moment, Caesar Rodney having ridden all night long, changing horses four times, mud-splattered, weary, and in fact, uh, later discovered uh, uh, suffering from a terminal illness, uh, uh, we assume cancer, uh, Caesar Rodney comes into the meeting and is able to cast his vote for the Declaration of Independence. Stubborn persistence. A man who, against all odds, was determined to get there in time for the vote, and he got there. And then, of course, you know of John Hancock. John Hancock was the president uh, of the Continental Congress. Uh, the vote was cast and, and the declaration uh, was passed. Uh, now someone has to act. Well, they, they wanted, on the one hand, to keep this uh, revolutionary, uh, virtually treasonous act declaring independence from their sovereign. They needed to keep it confidential, and so it was determined they would keep it confidential, though there was some conversation and word began to leak out. It was determined that no one would really sign the document. They really didn't sign it, as you'll recall, until August. So it was about a month later uh, before the document was actually signed. However, for that one month, from July the 2nd until August the 2nd, there, was one, there were really two signatures, but one main signature on that document. While it was being revised as an official draft, it was being put into final form, and then it would be authenticated and, and printed uh, engrossed, uh, there was one name. John Hancock decided that he would step forward and in bold and large letters he signed his name at the bottom of this draft document and lent it some authority and credibility. The words are that he decided to write his name, quote, large enough that the king might read them without his spectacles. It seems so heroic to us now. It seems so magnificent and full of romance and the thrill of history in retrospect. But it was a dangerous act. And he, along with Charles Thompson, the Secretary of the Continental Congress, signed their names to what could easily have been a quick death warrant. A man of courage. And then, of course, there's John Adams. No survey of these uh, great characters would be complete without reference to John Adams. John Adams was a, a man who came from humble means, but a man who, by virtue of his study, by virtue of his intellect, uh, really, in many ways, uh, was indeed, as Thomas Jefferson later described him, the colossus of independence. 
It was really, in many ways, the mind of John Adams, who for two years previous to the creation of the Declaration of Independence had done the kind of intellectual work and background that, that made it possible for there even to be a Declaration of Independence by his letters, by his essays, by his uh, newspaper articles, by his speeches, by his voluminous uh, activity in terms of speech and writing and composition, by his productivity, by his rigorous and vigorous commitment to intellectual detail, by the writing and rewriting and rewriting of letters and essays and speeches, John Adams produced the kind of intellectual argument for freedom and independence that had been going on for several years and ultimately was able to carry the day when it came time for political courage and rhetorical skill and even warfare. John Adams, a man of great intellectual rigor, discipline, and excellence. The story of the Declaration of Independence is a story of people who in some ways were ordinary, though also no doubt uh, unusual, but people who found themselves in extraordinary times and by their courage, by their intellect, by their discipline, by their persistence, by their vision, by their political shrewdness were able to somehow bring together a document and then ultimately a nation which has transformed the intellectual and political history of the world. Surely they are good examples for leadership. Thomas Jefferson, a man of vision, a man who could see the big picture, a man who could see the grand and glorious scope of the implications of freedom. And though Thomas Jefferson, as we all know, particularly from recent uh, uh, political intrigue, though Thomas Jefferson himself not only had slaves but even uh, had children uh, from those slaves, Thomas Jefferson in the creation of the Declaration of Independence actually had very strong abolitionist language in the Declaration of Independence, language which was ultimately struck, and it cut him to the quick, and uh, quite uh, likely it is the case that that's many warned in the creation of the Declaration of Independence, as that uh, uh, musical, Broadway musical 1776 suggests very strongly, that we cut this abolitionist language to our great peril, and we will have to visit it again. Thomas Jefferson was a man of great ideas, a man of vision. I know at our university recently we've gone through the creation of something that we call our tenure vision. And I can tell you that it was a very uh, interesting uh, process, and it was something that I personally learned a great deal from. I, I, I learned that there's a big difference between a vision and a plan. It's one thing to develop a plan whereby you try to execute various steps. It's one thing to have a plan which has strategies and budgets and incremental steps. But a vision is something even more than that. And a vision is something that not only institutions can have, but individuals can have. A vision is something that has not only intellectual content, but it also has a kind of emotional content. And I challenge you to have a vision for your life. Don't just live life somehow one day at a time. Don't just be reactive and, and somehow only responsive. But I ask you to dream great dreams. 
I ask you in the name of Jesus Christ to realize that you are salt and light in the world and that you are here for a purpose. You have been put here on mission. Your life is not your own. You have been bought with a price. Somehow your accountability is far greater than any kind of accountability that, that, is, that is reckoned only in terms of individual achievement or that is reckoned only in terms of, of dollars or, or income or resumes. It is a responsibility that represents ultimately a stewardship before God and I challenge you to dream great dreams. Have a vision for your life. Have a vision for your life in company with others. Have a vision that means that your life will somehow have a transforming influence on those around you. I challenge you to be a leader. I challenge you to be someone like a a Ben Franklin. You've got to realize that people are important and the achievements that you have and the, the goals that you may have and the, the vision and dreams you may dream, that you must also learn how to relate to other people. That statement in the book of Genesis, it is not good for the man to be alone, is not just a statement about marriage. It is a, it is a statement about the, con, the constituent basis of human experience. That is, we are made as relational creatures. We are made as, as those who, who somehow are made for relationship. And when we think of the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, then at the very heart of the very character of God, there is this notion of relationship. We as human beings are made as relational creatures, and Ben Franklin somehow had the shrewdness to realize that he had to keep people together somehow, keep people working together. In American culture, particularly the farther west we go, and I am a Texan and a West Texan, I do not think of myself as a Southerner as much as I think of myself as a Westerner. We Westerners, but but really uh, Americans in general and Westerners in particular, we have a strong individualistic uh, strain in our experience. And that's good because it makes us determined. It makes us willing to take risks. It It can make us people of vision. But on the other hand, we must always remember that ours is not a lonely individualism. We must live in community. The notion of the church is the fellowship of the people of God who together, as God's children, as as followers of Christ, are, are together supposed to be salt and light in the world. As a leader, you need to have people skills and relationship skills, and you need to be able to relate to others. You've got to be persistent. Don't give up easily. Uh, the story of uh, Caesar uh, Rodney who rode that 80 miles and changed horses four times and went over a hilly terrain and mud splattered uh, comes into that meeting is only a tiny illustration of the kind of persistence represented, for example, by the life of Jesus Christ who, uh, though abused and rejected and scorned and, and humiliated, as Paul says in Philippians 2, he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is the message of of a discipline and a discipleship and a lifestyle of commitment to the will of the Father that caused our Lord not only to be committed to the Father's will in theory, not only theologically, but by the very praxis of his life, he lived a life of discipline and discipleship that was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Leaders 
are people who do not give up easily. Leaders are people who persist. Leaders are people who somehow draw upon not only their own inner resources, but the resources of the living God to propel them forward. And I challenge you to be salt and light in the world, to be people of vision, to be, to be people of persistence, to be people who, who know how to relate to others. And I challenge you to have courage. Courage can be unpacked in any number of ways. Uh, in, the, in the illustration I gave you, I, I used the illustration of John Hancock, the man who decided to write his name large enough so that the king, who could not see well, could read his name even without the benefit of his spectacles. A man who put his name down first, a man whose name, save for the, the name of the secretary, was the only name on that document and the one to whom accountability would, from whom it would be rendered and exacted with his own life. The courage of his convictions. It's one thing to have convictions. It's something else to be able to act upon those convictions. Sometimes people do things that appear to be brave. I'll tell you, when people don't know the consequences of their action and do them, they're not really heroes even if what they have done sounds spectacular. But when people count the cost, when people somehow have an inkling of the consequences, and yet in spite of the consequences are willing to make decisions that, that, will, that say, I will attempt to do what is right and what is best, irrespective of the consequences for me as a person, that is the mark of courage. And again, when I think of the life of our Lord one of the theological questions we often ask is, why did Jesus die? And there we try to think of the theological significance of his death. But I'll pose for you another question. The question is this, why did they kill him? Why did they kill him? Jesus, in his own culture, in his own uh, experience revolutionized the Judaism of his day. Jesus ultimately and, and radically reread the scriptures. You have heard that it was said of old, but I say to you. Jesus humiliated the religious leaders of his day uh, in the public square. The crowds loved him, but then even when the crowds went against him, he stood by his convictions. This radical revision of Jewish tradition that comes about through the life and theology and teaching and behavior of Jesus. He is a remarkable man for any number of reasons as the Son of God. He is remarkable for his courage in the face of enormous opposition. And for that courage, for his convictions, they killed him. I challenge you to be a person who is committed to excellence. John Adams wrote and rewrote his speeches and his essays and his letters and his articles, his leaflets and his pamphlets, and he made the case for independence. I challenge you to be a person of excellence. Be a person committed to... committed to going beyond mediocrity, committed to having a, an area of expertise. Be a person who, who is committed to, to knowing yourself and knowing what your gifts are and then exercising those gifts to the utmost. Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, stir up the gift that is within you through the laying on of my hands. 
I challenge you to be committed to excellence in whatever you do. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. Recently, there was uh, released again uh, the movie by the name of Amadeus. It's the story of Mozart, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. But, of course, the protagonist, the real character in the story is not just Mozart. It's this character by the name of Salieri. I had the privilege of seeing this play when it first uh, emerged, oh, I don't know, 20-plus years ago on Broadway. And it's a remarkable piece, and it's very moving. And, and it's remarkable for all kinds of motifs, but Salieri... Salieri is the court musician, and Salieri wants to be a great musician, and Salieri makes a deal with God, and he has this deal that God is supposed to make him the great musical genius that Salieri wants to be, until along comes Mozart. And Salieri realizes when he hears the music of Mozart that he's hearing a music that is far superior to anything that he could create. He's hearing a a music that is an example of, of genius. Salieri becomes bitter, and Salieri then has an argument with God. He feels as though God has somehow betrayed him and let him down. And, and then comes the reason. There's this dialogue between Salieri and God in which the reason for the name Amadeus emerges. Have you ever wondered why they call it Amadeus and not Mozart? Well, it's Amadeus because the name Amadeus, which is, of course, his middle name, but the name Amadeus means beloved of God. And that's what infuriates Salieri. Salieri somehow thinks that God has put his hand on Mozart. It is Mozart who is beloved of God. And and Salieri wanted to be beloved of God. And in the movie and in the play, whether this is the way it worked or not historically, but in the movie and in the play, Salieri then begins to conspire. He, He holds Mozart down. He knows Mozart is a genius. And it's in that that Salieri really missed his own calling because Salieri does have a genius. He does have a a world of excellence. That is, he's able to hear the music of Mozart. Others cannot hear the genius in Mozart's music the way Salieri can. But Salieri is not satisfied with his gift. He wants Mozart's gift. And so he complains to God. He He doesn't somehow live with excellence, the live out the gift that he has to hear the brilliance in this and become Mozart's benefactor and protector and promoter. Instead, he holds him down. And as the movie and play go on, he conspires and... And he ends up insane, claiming, I have killed Mozart. He claims that he has murdered him, and he makes his confession. In the movie, at the end, he makes his confession in an insane asylum to the inmates. But in the Broadway play, it's even stronger, because in the Broadway play, Salieri looks out at the audience. He looks out at all of us, and he says, mediocrity, mediocrity. Mediocrity is everywhere. He's reflecting upon his own music, which was oh so mediocre. And he says, mediocrity is everywhere. I am the patron saint of mediocrity. He says, but I absolve you. And he points to all of us in the audience. And he says, I absolve you. I absolve you. I absolve you all. But you know, there is no absolution for mediocrity. There is no absolution for for refusing to take whatever the gift is that God has given you, whether it's ten talents or five talents or one talent, for refusing to take that and, and live it to the uttermost, express it under the lordship of God. You know, our Lord spoke some very harsh words against the one servant who took his talent and hid it underneath a rock and refused to have the courage that would take a risk 
with the talent that he had. Well, I close by telling you that so far, I've told you a lot about the qualities of leadership and the attributes of, I think, great leaders. But there's one thing more that if I do not say will render this entire presentation an abject failure, whatever else it may be after I mention the last item. But without this last item, it is absolutely incomplete and inappropriate. Because you see, in a sense, you could have courage and intelligence and persistence and discipline and vision and many of these attributes that I've mentioned, a commitment to excellence. But thus far, of course, I could point out some of the greatest villains in history, a Stalin or a Ceausescu or a Hitler, and could say, you know, they had a plan and a vision. They had the ability to galvanize people. They extended their influence to others. They had discipline. They had commitment. They had rigor. They had persistence. And in a sense, they were leaders, though they were evil. But of course, we're not called to be leaders like that. We're called to be salt and light in the world, people who reflect the life of Jesus Christ and the character of God revealed through Jesus Christ. And so I tell you that if you are not a person of character and integrity, if you don't drink deeply of the Ten Commandments and the life of Jesus and the moral teachings of Scripture which reflect the very character of the living God, if you do not somehow allow that character to have its transforming effect upon you, you might be a leader, but you won't be the right kind of leader. I challenge you not to be a villain, but to be a leader who extends influence with all of those attributes of discipline and persistence and excellence and vision and let those be extended out of a heart and mind and character of moral integrity without faithfulness, without integrity. Ultimately, there is no true leadership to extend. I challenge you, be salt and light in the world and live your life after the model of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Christ-like leadership. We've just heard from Robert Sloan. After the break, we'll return with Curtis D. LeBaron for Face-to-Face Leadership as a Man Speaketh Unto a Friend. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Christ-like leadership. Next is Curtis D. LeBaron, BYU Associate Professor of Organization, Leadership, and Strategy in the Marriott School of Management at the time of this address, titled Face-to-Face Leadership, As a Man Speaketh Unto a Friend. When I arrived at BYU eight years ago, I was in my office organizing books and filing papers 
when I received a phone call informing me that there had been a glitch in payroll processing and that I would not be receiving a paycheck during the first two months of my employment. I said thank you and hung up the phone and then started thinking about how to break this news to my wife Jan. Within minutes, there was a knock at my office door. It was Ned Hill, who was then the dean of the Marriott School of Management, and he was paying me an unexpected visit. I made a place for him to sit down as he explained that he had just been informed about the payroll glitch and he wanted to know what he could do to help me. I could see the sincerity in his face and hear the concern in his voice. In one hand, he was holding what appeared to be his own personal checkbook. In the other hand, he was holding a pen that was already clicked. After I assured him that the LeBaron family would be fine, he asked about our move to Utah, my plans for research and teaching, and so forth. We talked briefly, and then he left. Through Dean's visit of five minutes, he quickly won me over. Instead of calling me to his office or sending an email or delegating the matter, he had walked across the building to have a brief face-to-face conversation. Although our interaction was not long, I felt heard, understood, and valued. Sometimes it seems that part of being a professor is complaining about university administration. At most universities, that's the glue that holds the faculty together. But when Dean Hill talked to the faculty in the Marriott School, people listened receptively. When he gave new directions, people followed respectfully. And when he invited people to contribute money to expand the Tanner Building so that the business school could grow, the faculty gladly opened their personal checkbooks with pens already clicked. Our new dean, Gary Cornea, also practices the power of face-to-face leadership. To have a conversation with Gary is to feel like you have a friend in the dean's office. And that's what I want to talk about today not the grand public speeches to large audiences that we usually associate with leadership, but rather the relatively private conversations whereby leaders change people and transform organizations. For about 16 years, I have been doing research on organizational behavior and leadership. My approach has been anthropological. In other words, Rather than study people within the context of a laboratory, I study them within their natural environments. Using microphones and video cameras, I go into organizations where people are working and leading, and I capture their behavior in the wild by making recordings that I can then analyze closely and carefully. For me, leadership is not an abstract notion, but is rather a rich description of what people actually do. When I want to observe and assess a leader's effectiveness, one of my favorite places to look is at the moments of transition. Like the green that grows in the cracks of a sidewalk, leadership usually springs to life between activities and at the edges of events. For example, when I videotape a board meeting, I usually start recording before anyone has entered the room because I have found that sometimes the most important displays of leadership happen before the meeting actually begins. Boundary moments 
such as openings and closings of conversations or meetings are especially revealing. To illustrate, let's listen to the opening of a telephone conversation at work. Within seconds, the participants display a close and friendly relationship. Listen carefully and try to follow along with the transcript because this boundary moment happens very fast. Okay, that took 12 seconds. But within that 12 seconds, Art and Bob do important work. When Art picks up the phone and says hello, he shows that he's available. When Bob says hey at line three, he shows that he can recognize Art's voice. When Art repeats hey at line four, he loudly and enthusiastically shows both recognition and high regard. Through the next 12 lines of their conversational play, such as their inane repetition of the words hey and buddy, <laughs> they quickly communicate at least four important messages. I hear you. I understand you. I like you. I can work with you. Art does not assert his power over Bob. He does not invoke an organizational title. Instead, he engages with Bob to interactively instantiate a close, cooperative, and creative relationship, the sort of relationship that may help their organization to thrive. All right, in contrast, let's listen to an excerpt from the opening of a different conversation at a different organization. You will now hear the owner of a company, Eric, the CEO, talking to his management team at the start of a two-hour meeting. I have to look at the assets in each and every one of you, because you know, I could get real caught up in the negatives of each and every one of you. I don't do that. Uh, even with her, I don't do it. She's valuable. She, you know, she, maybe she doesn't have the ability to move with the company. She's more stationary in what her thought is. Okay. In a variety of ways, Eric asserts his power and position through what he says and how he says it. Through talk, he occupies the conversational floor, delivering a monologue about the way things are rather than a dialogue that invites and includes the views of others. He separates himself from his managers by using the pronouns I and you instead of we. And he elevates himself above his managers by depicting them as the objects of his scrutiny. I have shown you two excerpts that are extreme and contrasting. Please do not think that one form of leadership is correct while the other is wrong. Rather, these two extremes represent two ends of a continuum along which leaders must reside moment to moment and day to day. Sometimes leaders need to foster close relationships of relative equality. Occasionally, strong displays of power and difference may be necessary. Usually, leaders must achieve an appropriate balance according to the contingencies of their situation. And that's the hard part. Within the MBA program, as was said, I teach required courses on leadership using the best readings that I can find. 
Did you know that on average, a new book about leadership is published every 20 minutes? Most of these books contain endless lists of do's and don'ts that have been abstracted from the situations that make them meaningful and relevant. When students ask me, I tell them that the best way to learn leadership is to work closely with a great leader and to carefully watch what he or she does across a variety of circumstances because we tend to become like the people that we attend. If working closely with someone is not possible, then I encourage students to read the autobiographies and biographies of great leaders because stories keep the lessons of leadership alive. If reading is not possible, then students might as well take my class. Joseph Smith was a great leader. Then thousands of converts crossed the world in an effort to be near him. Now thousands of missionaries crossed the world in an effort to be like him. What did the leadership of Joseph Smith look and sound like, moment to moment and day to day? Unfortunately, we don't have video recordings that we can analyze, but we do have the written accounts of those who were there. Their journals are like ethnographic field notes. For example, consider a few excerpts from the journals of early saints who gathered at Nauvoo, Illinois. In 1841, Heber C. Kimball arrived with more than 100 immigrating saints, and he recorded this. We landed in Nauvoo on the 1st of July, and when we struck the dock, I think there were about 300 saints there to meet us, and a greater manifestation of love and gladness I never saw before. President Smith was the first one that caught us by the hand. Robert Crookston arrived the next year in the fall of 1842, quote, as we approached the landing place, to our great joy, we saw the prophet Joseph Smith there to welcome his people who had come so far. We were all so glad to see him and set our feet upon the promised land, so to speak. It was the most thrilling experience of my life, for I knew that he was a prophet of God. Thomas Steed crossed the Atlantic in 1844. He said the prophet Joseph Smith was at the pier. At first glance, I could tell that it was him. He came on board to shake hands and welcome us by many encouraging words and express his thankfulness that we had arrived in safety. Christopher Layton, also a British convert. There stood the prophet on the banks of the river to welcome us. As he heartily grasped our hands, the fervently spoken words, God bless you, sank deep into our hearts, giving us a feeling of peace such as we had never known before. Researchers look for patterns. Do you see the obvious patterns in these accounts? The prophet understood, or at least practiced, the power of face-to-face -face leadership. Although terribly busy with the weight of the kingdom on his shoulders, he made other people's transitions his own boundary moments. Within seconds, his glance, his handshake, and the kind words he communicated sent these messages. I see you. I understand you. I love you. I want to work with you. 
he powerfully embodied what his words described. One of my favorite accounts of Joseph Smith's leadership comes from the journal of my own great-great-grandfather, Benjamin Franklin Johnson. At the age of 14, Benjamin moved to Kirtland, Ohio with his family. Although his mother had joined the church, his father was not interested and refused to allow Benjamin to be baptized. Based on his journal accounts, it seems that he was a shy teenager who sometimes stood on the periphery of meetings and activities. When the Kirtland Temple was dedicated, the prophet went to a nearby schoolhouse and he gave blessings to those who had worked on the temple. The process of giving blessings took three days. Benjamin was there and he recorded this in his journal. When on the last day of blessings, I was standing by the door in the crowded congregation, and oh, how I did yearn for a blessing. And as the last blessing apparently was given, the prophet looked earnestly toward the door where I was standing, and he said to his brother Hiram, go and see if there is not one more yet to be blessed. Brother Hiram came to the door, and seeing me, he put his hand upon my shoulder and asked if I had not worked on the temple. I said, no, sir, but it seemed like passing a sentence upon my fondest hopes. He then asked if I had done nothing towards it. I then thought of the new gun that I had earned and given as a donation, and of the brick that I had helped to make. I said, I did give often. He said, I thought there was a blessing for you, and he almost carried me to the stand. The prophet blessed me. I felt then that the Lord had respect for my great desire. Even to be the youngest and last to be blessed seemed to me a high privilege. When the prophet had looked toward the door, I felt as though he would call for me, though I could not see how I had merited so high a privilege. But so it was, and my joy was full. After three days on his feet, I'm guessing that Joseph Smith was tired, maybe with a pain between his shoulders from keeping his hands constantly elevated. But when the boundary moment came, this time a closing rather than an opening, the prophet attended to the silent prayer of a teenager standing at the back of the room near the door. How did Hiram know where to go when Joseph said, go and see if there is not one more? I think I know the answer. When transitions emerge within organizational settings, people literally look toward the leader for an embodied answer to the question, what are we going to do now? Hiram must have looked toward Joseph and seen that he was oriented in Benjamin's direction. My great-great-grandfather lived a long and faithful life as a missionary, pioneer, and colonizer. Today, he has tens of thousands of descendants. Before his death in 1905, he stood in the Salt Lake Tabernacle and bore testimony of Joseph Smith as one of the last to have personally known him. How did Joseph Smith become such a powerful leader, capable of changing people and transforming a worldwide organization? One answer is that he worked closely with a great leader and carefully observed what he did across a variety of circumstances. When Joseph was 14 years old, he was also struggling 
at the periphery of religious activity, desperate and yearning for a blessing. And the Lord had great respect for his desire. With the first vision, Joseph Smith entered into an apprenticeship with the Lord and gradually became more like the leader that he attended. Another answer is that Joseph read the scriptures, which contained the autobiographies and biographies of great leaders, including Jesus Christ. By continually studying and eventually translating sacred texts, the prophet must have gleaned lessons of leadership from the various stories and situations that make those lessons meaningful and relevant. Consider, for example, the Book of Mormon account of Christ's visit to the Americas. According to chapter 11 of 3 Nephi, the resurrected Lord appeared to those who were gathered at the temple in the land of Bountiful. Beginning in verse 8, we read, And it came to pass, they cast their eyes again towards heaven, and behold, they saw a man descending out of heaven, and he was clothed in a white robe, and he came down and stood in the midst of them. And the eyes of the whole multitude were upon him, and they durst not open their mouths. Many boundary moments involve the arrival of someone that others don't recognize or know. In the MBA program, students are taught to introduce themselves, not just by saying their names, but also by quickly telling their story so that others can know, appreciate, and remember them. The Lord does something like that in the next few verses, verses 9 through 11. And it came to pass that he stretched forth his hand and spake unto the people, saying, Behold, I am Jesus Christ, whom the prophets testified shall come into the world. And behold, I am the light and the life of the world, and have drunk out of the bitter cup which the Father hath given me, and have glorified the Father in taking upon me the sins of the world. During the openings of social encounters and organizational events, participants must quickly negotiate their relationship, their way of being together, who they are in relation to one another, and the task at hand. In the next verses, verses 12 through 15, we read one of the most sacred accounts of face-to-face leadership that has ever been recorded. And it came to pass that when Jesus had spoken these words, the whole multitude fell to the earth. And it came to pass that the Lord spake unto them, saying, Arise and come forth, that ye may thrust your hands into my side, and also that ye may feel the prints of the nails in my hands and in my feet, that ye may know that I am the God of Israel and the God of the whole earth and have been slain for the sins of the world. And it came to pass that the multitude went forth and thrust their hands into his side and did feel the prints of the nails in his hands and in his feet. And this did they do going forth one by one until they had all gone forth and did see with their eyes and feel with their hands, and did know of a surety, and did bear record. The scriptures tell us there that they all went forth one by one, about 2,500 souls. You do the math. If each person faced the Lord for only five seconds, the process lasted for about four hours. Here is another lesson about the importance of face-to-face leadership. 
Despite the investment of time and effort, the Lord briefly but unmistakably communicated with each individual. I see you. I understand you. I love you. I have died for you. The risen Lord powerfully embodied what his words described. The closing of the Savior's visit, recorded in chapter 17, is at least as powerful and sacred as the opening. In verses 4 and 5, we read, Now I go unto the Father, and also to show myself unto the lost tribes of Israel. And it came to pass that when Jesus had thus spoken, he cast his eyes round about again on the multitude, and behold, they were in tears, and did look steadfastly upon him, as if they would ask him to tarry a little longer with them. Not only did the Lord stay a little longer, he wept with them. He blessed their little children, their little ones, and he taught them things too sacred to be recorded. For those of us who are preoccupied with time management, here's a lesson of leadership. Evidently, the God of the universe changed or delayed his schedule to answer the silent prayer of those who were yearning for a blessing. During this boundary moment, the Lord had respect for their great desire, confirming that our prayers are not a monologue about the inevitable, but rather a dialogue that invites and includes us. Sometimes the glorious accounts of Third Nephi seem far removed from our condition. Within organizations, including here at BYU, people too often feel lonely, isolated, and confused. Ironically, this kind of alienation comes not from a lack of communication, but from a surplus of the wrong kind. Our lives are awash with memos, emails, and instant messages. Sometimes these are helpful and efficient, but they are also flat and faceless. They're easily discarded, deleted, and ignored. One of the oldest poems in the English language is preserved in the Exeter book. This book was written or copied out in about 975 A.D. The poem itself may have been composed in about 500 A.D., approximately 1,500 years old. The poem is entitled The Wanderer. The teller describes himself wandering alone, having lost his leader and his people in battle. He is now searching for a new home, a place of warmth and leadership. To the wanderer, all weather is wintry and all landscapes are lonely. Here are a few excerpts from this poem, translated into modern English. There is now none among the living to whom I dare clearly express the thought of my heart. Ever since the time many years ago that I covered my leader in the darkness of the earth and from there I crossed the woven waves, winter sad, downcast for want of a hall, a place far or near, where I might find one in a mead hall who should know of my people or would comfort me, friendless, receive me with gladness. In the final stanza of the poem, the narrative voice shifts to include all people, including us, suggesting that the wanderer's experience is universal. In other words, all of us are wanderers, 
Although we may wrap our bodies in many layers of comfort, clothes, blankets, carpets, roof, and walls, we cannot escape the winters of this world. And although we may surround ourselves with other people at the office, the school, or the stadium, we remain fundamentally alone, even in a crowd. Coincidentally, we have another text, approximately 1,500 years old, that tells of a wanderer named Moroni, the son of Mormon, who witnessed the destruction of his people and spent many years wandering the landscape alone. He wrote, I even remain alone to write the sad tale of the destruction of my people, but behold, they are gone, for I am alone. My father hath been slain in battle, and all my kinsfolk. I have not friends nor whither to go. I wander whithersoever I can for the safety of mine own life. However, Moroni was not without a leader. He knew that God lives. He had a living testimony of Jesus Christ, which he shared with us. Quote, And then shall ye know that I have seen Jesus, and that he talked with me face to face, and that he told me in plain humility, even as a man telleth another in mine own language concerning these things. And now I would commend you to seek this Jesus, of whom the prophets and apostles have written, that the grace of God the Father and also the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost may be and abide in you forever. Repeatedly in the scriptures, the Lord asks us to seek his face through the words of prophets who have found his face. Some of us will take a little longer than others. The brother of Jared did not see his face until he had first recognized and grasped the hand of the Lord in his life. Although loneliness may be our universal condition, face-to-face leadership is our eternal end. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face-to-face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. Brothers and sisters, as I stand here, I feel deep gratitude for the leadership of Joseph Smith and the Savior. I feel the truthfulness of the gospel. This is the stone cut out from the mountain without hands that is now going forward to fill the earth. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Christ-like leadership with thoughts from Robert Sloan and Curtis D. LeBaron. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.